Good morning again. Um, my shoes are a little squeaky. It reminds me of being at a gym, you know, and you're, I spilled a whole bunch of water over there. And my kids weren't even sitting there, so I couldn't blame it on them. So, um, well, we're looking at Mark again. We've been going through Mark since we began meeting in March. We're in chapter 9, and we're going to finish chapter 9, which is, we're going to start at verse 42 and end at verse 50. Uh, as I, I looked through this passage this week and um, thought a lot about it and prayed about it, and the story of a friend who's a church planter continually comes to my mind, where uh, one Sunday earlier in their church plant, there was a section on hell in his passage, and he went on this 25-minute just lecture on hell, and then promptly got done, went home, got in his bed, laid in the fetal position, and told his wife, no one is ever coming back. <laughs> I just ruined our church. <laughs> and the next week, they had more people than they ever had. So as we look through this passage, hopefully I'll be somewhere in between those two points. Um, but just, you know, we see the Bible as it explains itself, that it is the Word of God. So every word is valuable. Every word has meaning. And we need to pay attention to it. Um, and we need to know that Jesus spoke this for a specific reason. Then and now we have it for a specific reason. And we like truth when it's truth we agree with. When it's truth we do not agree with, we have a hard time swallowing it. And this is one of those passages because it does talk about hell that I read and it's hard for me. And I hope it's hard for you too. Uh, hell is not a pleasant idea. So please listen as I read this passage. This is Mark 9, beginning of verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and, and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. For the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So as we look through this passage, we're going to look at the seriousness of sin. That is not a light subject. Uh, we're going to look at how sin is universal. And then we're going to look at the cure. Because if we just looked at sin, its seriousness and universal, and there was no cure, there's no hope. Uh, there's a quote in uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine, and he says, Sin arises when things that are minor good are pursued as though they were the most important goals in life. If money or affection or power are sought in 
disproportionate, obsessive ways, then sin occurs. And that sin is magnified when for these lesser goals we fail to pursue the highest good and the finest goals. So when we ask ourselves why, in a given situation, we committed a sin, the answer is usually one of two things. Either we wanted to obtain something we didn't have, or we feared losing something we had. It's a great definition of sin. Either we wanted to obtain something we didn't have, or we feared losing something that we have. It's really the idea of idols, as of making something ultimate that really in itself is not ultimate. But we have a really good way to do this, though it's wrong and sinful, is we see really good things like your job. It's good to have a job, but then we spend a disproportionate amount of time and energy. We neglect our family. We neglect things that are ultimate, which is God, the creator, in pursuit of a career that does not last beyond our days. Jesus does not ignore sin, nor does he offer a cheap remedy. Uh, That would actually be the greatest evil, to ignore something that is deadly and to make light of that thing that is deadly. That would be a horrible thing to do. And we would not put up with that. Think, if you went to the doctor and they knew you had a terminal disease and they just said, you know what, if you just take some vitamin C, just a little, I think you're going to be okay. It's going to clear up. There's one part of us that we'd be joyful. Like, oh, good. Like, it's not as bad as I thought. But then the reality of that is you have a disease that is destroying you, and someone has given you a cure that cannot do anything. So we always have mixed emotions. Because we want that, because it makes us feel like, oh, good, this is not that bad. But it's not really the truth. In this passage, Uh, In verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Uh, There would be nothing more dramatic than that. Uh, You know, if, if, if he says it's much better if this huge stone with a hole in it was put over your neck and you were thrown into the sea, that would be much better than causing someone else to sin. Sin is a serious disease that we all have. It's a serious problem. And then it goes on to say, if your hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Cut it off. Where we would say, you know, put a glove on it. Just do something minor where you can just ignore it. No one else is going to see really how bad your heart really is. So Jesus says, if, uh, when, when you understand sin, you need to deal with it in a radical way. It's spiritual surgery. Um, like, it's saying that this disease is so bad, you have something so bad in your leg, we need to cut it off, because if we do not do that, it will grow up your leg, it will continue to infect your whole body, and it will take your life. That is Jesus' description of sin. Uh, Now, um, 
our description is a lot different. If you're really honest with yourself and you really think about what do you want sin to be, what do you want the understanding of it to be, you would say, well, it's probably just more mistakes. Or it wasn't a good idea. But the Bible explains it in a whole different way. Uh, it is something that will kill you. It says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. It is complete death. Separation from your creator. It is a serious problem. As it continues to explain this, um, whatever is most precious to you, really in your life, is not worth having, is not worth anything compared to the kingdom of God. The greatest tragedy one could make in their life is to make light of sin, because when you make light of sin, you make light of Christ. Uh, we, we try not to do that, though. We try, not, we try to just say, I'm just going to make light of sin, and I'm just going to downplay it. Say, really, it's not really that bad. I can manage my sin. We've all thought that. And then what happens is you begin then to manage Christ. You attempt to put him in a box of, you know, if I can manage my sin, really, I can manage Christ. You know what? I really don't even need Christ then because look at how good I'm doing managing my sin. We can all show up Sunday morning and no one's wearing a sign that says, this is how your week went. This is what you struggle with. This is where you failed. This is where you're embarrassed this morning to sit next to somebody. We don't have those signs. Uh, we come and, you know, we dress up and we look very nice and pleasant. We really try to hide those things. I remember uh, years ago when the hurricane hit the Gulf Coast, we went to Biloxi. And many of you have heard this illustration, uh, but I'm telling it again because it's really good. <laughs> Um, and we would go and fix houses and help people with their yards after that horrible hurricane. And I remember driving down a road, and on the left side and the right side, the houses looked fine. The grass was tall, but the houses, they looked normal. They were all one-story little box houses. And I thought, why did these people not move back in? There's nothing wrong. We got out of our car, and we walked up to the houses, and a whole entire house was moved off its foundation by about two feet. And you looked around and all of them, they were just scooted over. That is how many of us live. Uh, the appearances were okay. Whatever your, your categories are, you have a job, you have a marriage, you guys are nice to each other in front of people, uh, your kids are obedient, they listen to you. Uh, there's no, you're not coming drunk to church. So it, we're all okay. The problem is, we spend too much time in this house that's moved off its foundation and it's destroyed. And so what really needs to be done is we don't need a new paint job. We don't need new windows. We need to get back on a foundation that is beyond us. So what we need to do is we need to take sin seriously. When we make light of sin, then we make light of Christ and then we begin to think very highly of ourselves and of then our significance and trust um, stops being in something in something ultimate and begins to be in something 
like ourselves. And then we create a new category for what is right and wrong. Uh, Sin is a serious thing. But the other quality of sin that we need to understand is that it is universal. It is spread throughout God's creation. And in sin being universal, there are are two components of it. There's the, the vertical nature of sin between us and our creator. And then there's the horizontal nature of sin between us and the people around us. We can't leave either of them out. Uh, With the vertical dimension, the God-oriented dimension, if we lose that, then we lose the grounding of sin. Why is sin really sin if God does not exist? We understand sin is sin because God exists. And sin is doing anything against God's character. Without the horizontal dimension, we would really have no accountability in our sin. Sin then becomes gauged by what our community around us calls sin. Uh, It's really interesting. In any community, think of your workplace, your family. Think of our church or any church you've ever been in. We all have community sins. And we sort of have the idea that, you know, we we all have an unspoken, because you really can't have this conversation of, We're just not going to call that sin. We're not going to have that conversation. But we're going to live like this sin over here is okay. No no one's really going to address that. We're just going to overlook it. Every community is tempted to have their own community sins. Think of in your family. Think of in your own life. Uh, I think a common one might be in our own life of being grumpy in the morning. That's a minor thing. That's our argument. But some people say, well, that's my nature. Just grumpy in the morning. You as my spouse, you're just going to have to live with that. I think that's a sin, being grumpy, being angry a person. I think it's a sin. We tend to overlook it. Or as dads, I fall into this. Um, I hate to say yelling even, because like yelling at my kids. I'll just call it talking loudly, okay? Being more productive with my voice. But really, it's me sinning, because I'm trying to control my kids. Instead of using other ways to get them to listen to me. So we all have those. But we need both those dimensions. We need the vertical dimension, because we know that sin is... Uh, beyond just what we think as people, what we think as Americans, it's universal. We have our sin in our communities. That's a great thing about being in a church. If you are investing in other people and they're investing in you, that you are building relationships because then you are given the opportunity and they are given the opportunity to speak either into your life or into their life. And that is extremely valuable. So what we need to think about in, as we look through sin is thinking about sin is not just our actions because we can control those. I can be really angry at you and I can control that and not punch you in the face. But it doesn't mean that I am not sinning against you when I'm standing there fuming at you. There's a sin beneath the sin. 
and you need to wrestle through in your life, when you're convicted of sin or when someone points it out, what is the sin that is beneath that? What is causing that in your heart? What is the motive behind that? Because if we are just a church that gathers together and everyone can say punching each other in the face is wrong and all these outward things are wrong, that's not what the Bible is about. That's not why Jesus came. You have a deeper problem. I have a deeper problem. I can't manage my own sin. It's not going to help with anything. Jesus shows also in this passage that you can't blame others for your sin. We like to do that too. You make me angry. What are we saying? It's your fault. When you do that, you make me sin. The reality is, my heart is angry. You've just given me the opportunity <laughs> that I can be angry. You are responsible for your actions. There is a right and wrong. Uh, there is sin explained in the Bible. God has given us his law. Some might say, well, if you're following the law, then you're being legalistic about it. No, I'd be legalistic about it if I said, if I'm obedient to these, then God is so much more prouder of me than he is of you. And he loves me so much more. I'm a better person than you because I can follow these laws. That's legalism. Walking in obedience is saying, this is the God who loves me, who called me from the beginning of creation to be his child. And he sent Christ to pay my penalty. So now I want to live with joy, walking according to his law. And it doesn't gain me anything. Correctly seeing the law of God points that God loves you only because of the work on the cross. God does not love you more because of your obedience. God loves you because of what Jesus accomplished for you. His righteousness, his perfection, his obedience, his death, his resurrection. That's why God loves you. Because he has done that for you. It's a great evil to point out this problem of sin and then leave people. That's really what morality does. We to point out this is the bad thing in your life, and then what's the cure? Well, the cure is you need to try a lot harder. You need to be much better to make sure we don't see this anymore. That's not the message of the Bible. D.L. Moody says, looking at the wound of sin will do nothing for you. What you must do is look at the remedy. What is the cure that you run to to uh, remedy your sin? I know you, because you're like me, the temptation is actually to run to another sin or to run to legalism, to think about what a good person you are. So really, it's okay that you did that thing. At the core of all sin is really unbelief. It is unbelief that sin is serious. It is unbelief that sin really breaks something. It really has an effect. And it is really unbelief about the cure that is in 
Christ alone. This is the message in Mark 1 where Jesus comes and he speaks and he says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. That's the core of our sin is we don't want to repent and we really don't believe. The cure offered in the gospel is not to make excuses. The Bible teaches us to confess our sin, to honestly look at how our actions and motives are offensive. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 say, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In this passage, it talks about God's justice. In this passage that we're looking at in Mark, it also talks about God's justice. This is the part about hell. Jesus speaks of the reality of hell as the reward for living as if your sin is not as bad and God will overlook any offense. It's really saying that uh, I really do a lot of good things. And I'm just going to trust that my good things outweigh my bad things. And so God, I think, is just going to have a sliding scale. He's going to be okay with that. Uh, The Bible doesn't explain that. Uh, The Bible very clearly says if you want to stand before God and claim your own righteousness, that you have no hope because God is holy. And for him to say, you know, it's okay. That sin you committed is really not as bad as your church attendance. That was wonderful. So God would be unjust to do that. So his justice is seen in if you are living a life and you don't care about the God who made you and the free offer of the gospel, you will get your just reward. You will pay for your sin, and that is the doctrine of hell. The other side of this is God's justice in his mercy. 1 John 1.9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. His justice in forgiveness is lived out by what Christ has done. Jesus took on the cross to earn justice for you and me. So we could stand before a holy God knowing we haven't earned anything, but we can say, Jesus did. And the only reason why I can stand before a holy God is because Jesus can. And I have faith in him, and I repent of my sin, and as I sin every day, I continually live in that cycle of repent and believe and I trust in Jesus, and I am set free. That's God's justice. Because he can't go against his promises. It's really an astounding truth that our forgiveness and acceptance was earned by Jesus. So if you believe that your law-keeping earns you something, you're not receiving the message of the Bible. You're not receiving the free offer of the gospel. So, God is just 
to forgive your sin because of what Christ has done. You can say it this other way. If you hold on to Jesus by faith, God has to forgive your sin because he is just and he has promised. He says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just. So you are out there and you wrestle through times just like I do of thinking about I am condemned of my sin and I think about my history and the things that I have done and I think, how could God forgive me? When I'm doing that, I'm not believing the promise of the gospel. I'm going back and saying, it's really dependent on what I do. That's what's going to earn me salvation. It's the free message of the gospel. So to understand this message, we have to understand how serious sin is. We have to understand that it's universal and it breaks two things. It breaks our relationship with God and it breaks our relationship with people. And the only cure is found in Jesus. There's nothing else. Working real hard is going to wear you out. Trust me, because that is my tendency. It's not to believe Jesus in his, what he has done, but it's really to think, I'm just going to be a better person. But I have to repent of that and only trust in this. Jesus ends this little discussion with, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt is lost, it's saltiness. How can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What is the mark of our persevering, of our being preserved with salt? Well, the mark of that is repentance. It's, are you able to say, this is the sin that I'm living in. I need to repent of it. And are you able to be a place of grace for someone else? I remember years ago, I think it was at a church. Maybe it was in a sermon. But who remembers anything from sermons? Probably wasn't. Um, and one of the points, must have been a sermon, the guy said was, uh, where do you go to drink deeply of the grace of God? And that question sticks in my mind. Where do you go to drink deeply of the grace of God, the living water? Have you developed relationships with people that are those type of people? That you can go and you can confess your sin and you can drink of the living water from them as they tell you the gospel. Because if you continually struggle in your sin, you need those people just like I need those people. So how are we to live? We're to live as people that are salted or preserved by the cross. That's what preserves us. Living as people preserved by God's grace alone, and it will be evident in your peace with other people. That is great application. That is great fruit of this passage. When we leave our own understanding of sin, believe that sin is horrendous, and really believe that Jesus is the only one who can set us free, then we are preserved by his Holy Spirit. And then what do we do? Then as we live amongst people, uh, we can live as people of peace. 
with one another because of what he has done. So in this passage this morning, this is a passage here about what Christ has done. It's about his death and resurrection. And what has he set you free from? And I encourage you this morning to be set free. Don't hold on to your own idols thinking they're going to give you peace because they're not. And I'm learning that more and more of what's happening in our family with Kara being ill, that the things I cling to for my own peace and pleasure, they're not going to do anything for me. And I'm really distorting what they were created for. So the only hope we have is the hope of God's promise that Christ has risen and he will return. And when he returns, we will eat with him. In 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about this meal before us. This is Paul, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also d- delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. There's also a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Um, So this morning, this table here before us is for anyone who can say, I hold on to Christ more than I hold on to my sin. If you can say that, you are encouraged and welcome to this table. Uh, If you are here this morning and you say, I don't believe this, I ask that you respect the words of Scripture. Even if you do not believe what we see the Bible says, we ask that you respect this. And if you cannot um, search your own heart and repent of your sin, then we ask that you wait to take of this table. I would encourage you, in your order of worship, there are a couple prayers in there. If you're here this morning, you're just searching for truth. You came in, you really don't know what the Bible says. I would ask that you read those prayers. You read the Gospel of Mark. Grab the person next to you and say, Hey, I want to know more about this. I really don't understand this. This table before us, is a table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the table of our church. This is for anyone who holds to Christ alone for salvation. It's his body given for you, and it's his blood shed for you. God is abundantly gracious that he meets our need. He forgives us of our sin, and then he sends us out uh, to be salt and light.
That is good news. Uh, so be sent out with the word of the Lord this morning. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. 